This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... I think that's a clear message to President Saeed that the people of Tunisia are refusing this path. They're refusing his project. They are not happy with the way he's managing the economy, managing the government. That's Mongi Dahoudi, president of the Washington-based Tunisian United Network, on how poor turnout at the country's last election reflects public dissatisfaction with President Kais Saeed. Details coming up. Also, Ethiopia is selling electricity generated by the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. Live sentences has been issued in Ivory Coast for four men convicted of a 2016 extremist attack that killed 19. And retired Pope Benedict's health is failing. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. A top story, the South Sudan's People's Defense Force says an armed group known as the White Army attacked some of its bases in the Greater Pibor Administrative Area. The Deputy Chief Administrator of the Greater Pibor Administrative Area says the militia is in full control of the Gomorruk County. For VOA News, Deng Gai Deng reports from Bor. Military spokesman Major General Lul Roy Kong says the White Army militia from Jongolei State has attacked South Sudan People's Defense Force bases in Gumruk and Lilkwangule in the Greater Pibor administrative area. Kong says soldiers from the SSPDF's Agrip Independent Brigade in the area fought back before withdrawing from Gumruk. On the 26th uh, December 2022, uh, Gumruk and uh, Lakwangle towns came under coordinated attack from armed youth suspected to have come from uh, Greater Jongolei. Uh, the force that was deployed uh, in Gubruk uh, resisted uh, their advances for the whole of the afternoon, but uh, in the early hours of, uh, of December 27, they, uh, they withdrew back to, to, to Pibor. And as of uh, that day, the armed youth from Greater Jongolei effectively took control of Gumruk. General Kong says SSPDF soldiers who withdrew from Gumruk are still battling in Kongor village in the Lirkwangule Payam. He says attacks on government-held bases are, in his words, a clear act of rebellion that must be dealt with. Of course it is unacceptable for, for armed civilians to deliberately uh, attack government held positions with, with barracks like the one that uh, we heard on Gubruk. It was a declaration on the government because if if they are raiders, if they are looking for cattle, they are looking for livestock, do a military barrack of such a livestock, we do not have, when, they, when our base came under attack, it was not having any livestock. General Kong says the National Army is mandated to protect civilians and their property. He says if the militia does not withdraw from the Greater Pibor administrative area, the SSPDF will continue to fight. When they uh, attacked uh, Gumruk, our forces fought back in self-defense. But of course they were outnumbered, they were outgunned, and as a result they had to pull back. Okay. You know the, the White Army came in thousands. 
Yes, I'm sure you had, you had seen the statement I released. Mm. It was strongly worded. And if they do not stop attacking our positions, we'll continue engaging with them. We'll continue engaging them. John Abula, the Deputy Chief Administrator of the Greater Pibor Administrative Area, says the security situation is worrying as the White Army controls Gumru County. Abula says the area's residents have fled their homes. Where there is, there is fighting always, there will be no any civilian that can, can endure to stay in, in that terrible situation. They, they scattered to the bushes. They are not in town. So there will be no food, there is no food, there is no shelters, and there is no even medical services for them. So automatically it needs the, the humanitarian agencies and the government, and the national government to, to come up with something that can rescue these people. Deputy Chief Administrator Abula hedges the national government in Juba to intervene in Pibor. He also urges his counterparts in Jonglei State to ask their youth to stop fighting and return to the estate. South Sudan in focus contacted Information Minister Michael McQuay to comment on this story, but he did not answer his phone. Yesterday, Abraham Kelang, the Information Minister in the Greater Pibor Administrative Area, told this program that at least 56 people have been killed and 17 others injured in attacks. John Samuel Manuon, the Jongolei State Information Minister, condemned the attacks and called on the armed youth to return to their homes immediately and said attacking neighbors is criminal and unacceptable. For VOA News, I am Deng Gaiding in Bor. A court in Ivory Coast today handed down life sentences for four men convicted of a 2016 extremist attack on a resort that left 19 people dead. The court in Abidjan, the country's commercial hub, found the four guilty of the March 13, 2016 attack. Men wielding assault rifles stormed the beach at Grand Bassam, a tourist complex 40 kilometers east of Abidjan, popular with Europeans, before attacking hotels and restaurants. The four men convicted today had been charged with aiding the attackers, but were not charged with directly taking part. Tunisian prosecutors have asked for 13 judges to be stripped of immunity so they can be tried on terror charges. The French news agency AFP says the move comes seven months after President Kais Saeed sacked 57 judges for corruption and for allegedly blocking investigations into two left-wing figures 10 years ago and for terrorist crimes mentioned in security reports. Defense lawyers say the 13 judges were among 49 reinstated in August. The accused are to appear before the Supreme Judicial Council on January 24th, a body whose members are chosen by the president who can also dismiss them without appeal. Defense lawyers say the case is political and Amnesty International says the suspensions are a direct attack on the rule of law. In its strongest challenge to the government of President Kais Saeed, Tunisia's powerful labor union says it will hold mass protests and occupy the streets soon to show its rejection of next year's austerity budget. The union, with more than a million members, has proven able to paralyze the economy with strikes. 
It has at times backed Saeed after he seized most power last year, but on another occasion has voiced opposition. Mongi Daoudi, president of the Washington-based Tunisian United Network, explained to VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shanawi what impact domestic popular pressure could have on the Tunisian president. I think after the election that we saw on the December 17 and the low participation around 8.8% and then it was adjusted to 11.2, which is still very, very low. It's a historical low for Tunisia and the region. I think that's a clear message to President Saeed that the people of Tunisia are refusing this path. They're refusing his project. They are not happy with the way he's managing the economy, managing the government, and definitely they do want a new path forward. And I think that no show of participation is a clear message to Khay Saeed that I hope that he, it is time for him to resign. It is time for him to allow an open path for a new round of talks and dialogues among the political actors in Tunisia so we can reach to a new phase. Would the deteriorating economic situation in Tunisia force President Saeed to step down? I think so. I think uh, we're going to see, um, after, especially a few couple days ago, he signed the new budget into law without any discussions, without any deliberations, and without definitely without a parliament, because we do not have the parliament that he, he shut down. And so this budget includes tremendous increase in taxes, in tariffs, and it does not respond to the aspirations of the Tunisian people with the inflation skyrocketing, with the lack of uh, some basic uh, goods in Tunisia right now, uh, like sugar and oil, cooking oil, and even some of the other necessities of life. Tunisian people are going through a very, very tough time, and we think is social unrest. If we do not come up with a solution within the next few weeks, not even months. We're going to saw a, a lot of unrest and very uh, large protests in Tunisia that will definitely will bring Kaisayid down. That was uh, Mongi Dahoudi, president of the Washington-based Tunisian United Network, speaking with VOA's Mohamed El-Shenawi. The French news agency AFP says... A special criminal court to judge war crimes and crimes against humanity in Central African Republic has been renewed for five years. The UN-backed tribunal was set up in 2015 to try crimes dating back to 2003 when General Francois Bozizet staged a coup. He was toppled ten years later as the country spiraled into civil war. The Ministry of Justice put together a draft bill to extend court's term and the National Assembly approved it in a voice vote. AFP says in late October, the tribunal issued a life sentence and two 20-year terms against three members of the 3R group, which was accused of killing 46 villagers in massacre in 2019. Justice Minister Arnaud Jube Abazin warned those who plot against state institutions and commit atrocities against citizens. He said justice will catch up with them. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Pope Francis today asked the public to pray for former Pope Benedict who he said is very sick. 
Reuters says the Vatican has not offered details on the state of his health. The news service says in recent months, the 95-year-old Pope Emeritus appeared frail and exceptionally weak, though his mind was still sharp. Benedict was the first German pope in 1,000 years when he was elected in 2005 following the passing of Pope John Paul II. During his papacy, he apologized for church scandals over allegations of abuse of children by the clergy and worked to support the victims. However, Reuter notes that a report in 2022 accused him of failing to stop four predatory priests while Archbishop of Munich in the 1980s. Benedict became the first pontiff to step down in six centuries when he resigned ten years ago for health reasons. Since then, he has been living in a former convent inside the Vatican with his secretary, aides, and medical staff. He continues to enjoy strong support from conservatives and traditionalists in the church. Ethiopia's $4.2 billion grand Renaissance dam, Gerd, is nearly finished. It is built on the Blue Nile, the river's main tributary that accounts for more than 85% of the water reaching Egypt. Egypt and Sudan, however, say Ethiopia should enter a legally binding agreement on the operation of the dam and on the me mechanisms for dealing with persistent drought. Both countries rely on the Nile for the bulk of their water supplies. Several years ago, Egypt's President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi asked the U.S. to help persuade Addis Ababa to agree on a deal, but talks made little progress. John Mukum Mbaku, a non-resident fellow at Brookings and a professor of economics at Weber State University, has researched and written extensively about the dam. He tells me that the GERD has already started generating electricity. The mega hydropower plant, according to the professor, will provide critical electricity to both Ethiopia and the wider region. Ethiopian Prime Minister Zenawi announced that uh, the country would construct a dam on the Blue Nile about 40 kilometers from the Sudan-Ethiopian uh, border in uh, April 2011, and immediately after that announcement, Egypt, and to a certain extent Sudan, began to argue against the construction of that dam. Egypt made more noise than Sudan, and Egypt actually started going around the world, making sure that if uh, Ethiopia was going to construct the dam, he will not be able to do so with international financial assistance. So that was the beginning of the headache for Ethiopia. Now we are on the third feeling, and the turbines are moving, and electricity is being generated. So let's start from there. And so, yes, you are right. The dam is now generating electricity. About uh, It was estimated that it will produce about 750 megawatts of electricity. And when it is fully uh, functional, it will generate up to 6,000 megawatts of electricity. Yes, Ethiopia is now in a position to sell electricity to its neighbors. As far as the GERD is concerned, what are the benefits? for the neighborhood uh, countries. You can look at the GERD from two perspectives, benefits for, for Ethiopia, which we can discuss later, and benefits 
for neighboring countries. Uh, neighboring countries can buy clean electric power from Ethiopia. The dam will generate up to 6,000 megawatts of electricity when it is fully operational. Ethiopia cannot use all that electricity, so it will be able to export that electricity to neighboring countries like uh, in Sudan, Kenya, Somalia, and all the other countries in the Nile Basin. That is clean energy. That is energy that will be very affordable. Ethiopia has already indicated that it is going to sell the electricity at very affordable rates. So the only thing that these countries will need to have to do will be to provide the cables and the infrastructure within which they can, uh, Ethiopia can export the electricity to them. So that is going to be a very big benefit, relatively low price electricity, which would allow all these countries to electrify to find the rural area. Uh, in addition to that, the girl would also be able to help Sudan minimize flooding and the damages that flooding has done to Sudan during the uh, uh, previous season. So that is a very good, uh, a very significant benefit to the Sudanese. Besides neighboring countries, what specifically does this dam benefit Ethiopia? Well, uh, number one, it's a unifying uh, entity for, for, you know, Ethiopia has had a lot of problems in the past with uh, uh, divisions within the country. This dam is considered a national pride is like Ethiopian Airlines, which uh, brings all Ethiopians together. It's something that Ethiopians abroad uh, and Ethiopians within Ethiopia can look to as something that belongs to them, not just to any one group in Ethiopia. So that's one of the benefits. But in terms of economic benefits, there, there's uh, quite a lot. Ethiopia can now extend uh, industries to the rural areas, especially uh, value added to agriculture. You can have light manufacturing in the rural areas, which was not possible up until now because of the lack of energy. Think of education, improve student learning. You know that uh, Ethiopia gets very hot during the summer, uh, the summer month, and it's very difficult for children to learn. Now, if you have air-conditioned classrooms, you're going to improve learning outcomes for children. Not only that, children can now, uh, schools can now stay open longer because children can do their homework at night uh, with electricity. Then you have internet. Internet can now go into the rural area very easily because you have electricity, something that you hadn't had in the past. Uh, and with, with internet going to the rural areas, you'll be bringing government and the global economy closer to the people who live in the rural areas. That was a non-resident fellow at Brookings and professor of economics at Weber State University, John Makum Mbaku. He spoke to me from the U.S. state of Utah. In the latest on the electricity purchase front, Ethiopia has become Kenya's second biggest source of hydropower under a deal signed by Kenya Power to buy 600 megawatts. This follows a 27-year power purchase agreement signed last November that will run till 2047 as Kenya turns towards cheaper sources of electricity. Kenya will pay Ethiopia 6.5 U.S. cents per kilowatt for the next five years. The United Nations says high food prices in 2022 led to a crisis of affordability that has pushed millions more people into hunger. VOA UN correspondent Margaret Bashir talks to experts about the situation and what to expect in 2023. 349 million. 
That's the number of people on the planet who don't know where they'll get their next meal, according to the UN's World Food Program. And the number is growing. The agency says by the end of this year, it will have fed a record 150 million of the most vulnerable. Experts say a combination of factors is driving food insecurity. The COVID-19 pandemic, conflicts, climate shocks, including historic floods and droughts, energy prices, and Russia's February 24th invasion of Ukraine. Arif Hussein is the chief economist for the World Food Program. But even before the war in Ukraine, the food price was at a 10-year high earlier this year. Fuel was at a seven-year high. We were already talking about inflation. So when this war came on Ukraine, it magnified everything. In part because Ukraine and Russia are breadbaskets for dozens of countries. Will Martin is a senior research fellow at the Washington-based International Food Policy Research Institute. Ukraine and Russia are important players in production, world wheat production. Their market shares are about 4 and 8%. Um, and a much bigger share um, in world exports. So if you don't have freely flowing grain from the Black Sea Basin, um, then you're going to have uh, very big problems uh, outside the war also drove energy prices up on fears of supply disruptions and sanctions on Russia's oil and gas exports. Fertilizer prices are up 250 percent from 2019, according to the UN. Half of global food production relies on fertilizer, and small farmers who cannot afford enough have seen their harvests decline. Again, Arif Hussein, the WFP's chief economist. Right now, with all that is happening, we are looking at essentially a shortfall of about 66 million tons of staple foods because of shortage of or, or unaffordability of fertilizer. I'm talking about crops like uh, wheat, corn, uh, rice. Now, that 66 million tons of food that is enough to feed 3.6 billion people for one month. Looking ahead to 2023, food security experts are watching fertilizer availability and weather. Maximo Torero is the chief economist for the UN Food and Agriculture Organization. In the case of wheat and corn, it will depend a lot on what happens with the weather. Argentina, for example, right now has some issues of, of weather which could be affecting the harvest, and that's something that we are observing very closely. The same could be happening in the U.S. The uninterrupted flow of grain and fertilizer from Russia and Ukraine under the Black Sea grain deal will remain critical to global food security. Rice is the primary staple food for half the planet, and experts are closely watching production. FAO's Maximo Torero. In case of rice, we are already observing a reduction in the supply because of lower planting. But rice, luckily, we have a lot of stocks because the previous years were pretty good. Economists say the strong U.S. dollar is increasing monetary pressures on dozens of poorer countries who are import-dependent and need debt relief. WFP's Hussein. If you're a poor country, if you're highly indebted, if you happen to import 
your food, your fuel, or your fertilizer, you are in trouble. Amid the rise in food insecurity, the UN recently named its first famine prevention and response coordinator to lead its system-wide response. Margaret Bashir, VOA News, the United Nations. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Iheyes Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Barrow, and our engineer, Nelson Lopes, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.